From the heart of The Ohio State University on the Oval, this is Voices of Excellence from the College of Arts and Sciences with your host, David Staley. Voices focuses on the innovative work being done by faculty and staff in the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. From departments as wide-ranging as art, astronomy, chemistry and biochemistry, physics, emergent materials, mathematics and languages, among many others, the college always has something great happening. Join us to find out what's new now. Delighted to be joined over Zoom today by Richard Samuels, professor of philosophy and member of the Center of Cognitive and Brain Sciences at The Ohio State University College of the Arts and Sciences. He has published extensively on issues concerning cognitive development, reasoning, computational models of psychological capacities, and modular theories of cognition. Dr. Samuels, welcome to Voices. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, and so obviously you work in the area of cognitive science, and I wonder if you'll start, first of all, by just giving us a brief definition of what's meant by cognitive science. This is not the same thing as psychology, I suppose. No, it's not the same thing as psychology, though it does include certain areas of psychology as subfields. So like psychology, cognitive science is principally interested in the explanation of mental phenomena and human behavior. The focus has tended to be on processes that psychologists sometimes call cognitive processes. And roughly speaking, what cognitive scientists and psychologists have in mind when they talk about cognitive processes are processes that in one way or another involve the use of information about the world we inhabit. So perception would be vision and hearing would be example of cognitive processes in this broad sense thinking, reasoning, memory, learning, and for that matter, decision-making and planning. Those would be all examples of cognitive processes. And one of the things that's really distinctive about cognitive science is that it's an interdisciplinary endeavor. So in addition to certain areas of psychology, especially developmental psychology and cognitive psychology, it also includes areas of neuroscience, linguistics, computer science, in particular, the areas that I know you have an interest in, David, artificial intelligence, and certain areas of philosophy as well. So philosophy of science, philosophy of mind, philosophy of logic are often being implicated in research and cognitive science in one way or another. As a philosopher, what do you bring to this interdisciplinary study? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's going to depend upon the particular kind of issue or particular domain that we're interested in. But for example, just to use an illustration, if we're concerned with issues about reasoning, philosophers have been interested in how to characterize reasoning for an extremely long time. And so there's a battery of distinctions and proposals about how to model reasoning, which have been borrowed by cognitive scientists in order to understand and characterize the phenomena they're interested in. So just to give you one example, there's a very long tradition in philosophy with an interest in deductive reasoning, the sort of reasoning that logicians can formalize. And cognitive psychologists and cognitive scientists more broadly, when they're interested in reasoning, will often use the resources that were developed by philosophers, people like Frege and Russell, for example, in order to characterize the sorts of issues, the sorts of reasoning phenomena that they wish to get data on. So that's one sort of thing. The other sort of thing is something that philosophers of science do quite generally. So scientists 
And sciences often kick up quite fundamental questions. Some of them are sort of quite conceptual in character. They're questions about how to understand certain fundamental notions that figure in the sciences. And the cluster of sciences that comprise cognitive science kick up quite specific philosophical issues as well about fundamental notions. So just to illustrate with one example, the notion of representation figures very centrally in cognitive science, the model of cognition that's very widely shared, not universally, but widely shared amongst cognitive scientists, is that minds are the kinds of things that represent certain aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. And the notion of representation has a history in philosophy, which, depending on how you're counting, is somewhere between 400 and 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. So we've thought very intensively about the nature of representation and those are theories that are very useful to bring to bear on research in psychology to try and clarify certain central issues and concepts. Well, I know you're one of the editors of the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy of Cognitive Science. And yeah. as I was looking over this book, I was really struck by some of the questions that the collection raises. To wit, how does the brain give rise to conscious experience? <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, a very simple question for you to answer. <laughs> No, it's not. I mean, this is a question in philosophy of mind, which in recent years, it's been floating around for, for hundreds of years. But the way this question is often characterized nowadays is as the hard problem of consciousness. And the hard problem of consciousness, you characterized it roughly in the way it's often characterized, which is there are these various physical processes, for example, neural processes that we have the scientific resources for characterizing Neuroscientists have all sorts of ways of characterizing brain systems and brain states. The hard problem of consciousness is the question of how all those neural goings on result in the subjective quality of experience, result in having conscious experiences of the world. And I think as, as suggested by your glib response to, <laughs> to the question, it's widely regarded as one of the most vexing and puzzling questions in all of the sciences and in sort of the brain, behavioral and cognitive sciences in particular. So the hard problem is often contrast with these relatively simple, they're not really simple problems or easy problems, but these relatively easy problems of how you, for example, characterize what's going on in certain regions of the visual cortex where someone's perceiving, for example, a shape of a certain sort or a certain color. Well, another one of the questions raised by the collection is, is a genuinely intelligent computer possible? Which, mm -hmm. as you've indicated, that's one of my particular yeah. areas of interest? It's one of my particular areas of interest as well, actually. I mean, the questions about the limits of computation are issues that I got interested in as an undergraduate doing a PhD in philosophy. I actually did uh, graduate work in artificial intelligence, and it was very much motivated by these foundational questions. Do you want me to answer that one, David? Yes, in as much as an answer is forthcoming. <laughs> yeah. So I think, what, I mean, there are a lot, as you can imagine, I suspect you asked the question knowing full well this is the case. There are a lot of broadly conceptual questions in the vicinity here as to what we mean by intelligence and what we mean by an artificial intelligence. Just briefly, intelligence is one of those words that gets used in quite different ways in different areas of the behavioral and brain sciences. What people very typically have in mind, though, when they're asking this question is, philosophers in particular when asking this question, is whether or not artificial systems, ones that we could produce, 
are capable of having genuine mental states. So beliefs, desires, perceptual states, whether or not they're capable of engaging in reasoning, whether they're capable of understanding a language. So the question is really, as I said, there are lots of different ways in which the term intelligence means, but the concern is whether or not they could be mindful artificial systems. Just one extra thing, the presumption is, you know, one way you might do this is grow a human being, a duplicate of a human being, a biological system inside of a vat. Typically, that's not what AI is concerned about. It's concerned with the issue of whether or not there can be certain kinds of computing devices that are intelligent. And indeed, very typically, the concern is whether or not the system in question, the computing system, can be intelligent by virtue of performing the relevant computations. So when a computer beats a human being at chess, for example, this is intelligent behavior. Maybe. It's certainly behavior that were a human being to engage in those sorts of activities. It would involve mental states in order to do so. So in the sense of intelligent that we were just talking about, the idea that it actually involves having mental states of the sort that, for example, psychologists and neuroscientists study, it's very far from obvious that, let's say, Deep Blue is intelligent in that sense. There is a sense in which the behavior is intelligent, though. So sometimes by intelligent behavior, we have something much more expansive in mind. We mean behaviors which are context appropriate in some way or another. So in the context of playing chess or playing some other board game, for example, Go, to use a recent example where computers have done exceedingly well indeed, in the context of a Go game, the way in which the computer is playing is extremely context appropriate. So, you know, in some more expansive sense of intelligence, it clearly is intelligent, right? Just not in the sense of requiring it to have mental states. And I suspect none of the people who program these systems are making that claim on behalf of their system. So deep mind, deep blue and the like, the claim is typically not that, you know, this thing has mental states that it understands, that it reasons and so on. It's just a very well-constructed computing system for solving certain kinds of problems, in these cases, games. What do you see as the prospects for an artificial general intelligence, say in our lifetimes? I think this is going to turn out to be very, very hard. So there is a long tradition since the inception of artificial intelligence in the late 50s and early 60s, where there were great drum rolls about how certain problems were to be solved very quickly. I don't think anyone in the AI community today thinks that that's the case. There's this, maybe it's apocryphal, but There is a story that the problem of generating a successful computational vision system was set as a summer project to MIT back in the late 50s, early 60s, I believe by Marvin Minsky. Nobody, I take it at this point in time, thinks that it's going to be easy in that sort of way. I think that things are much better at the moment and much more promising at the moment than they have been certainly during my lifetime. So there was a period during the 70s, 80s, and 90s in particular, where philosophers were really, philosophers of mind in particular, were really interested in artificial intelligence and the possibility of genuine AIs. They became disinterested in it because there were certain kinds of slowdowns in the engineering project of creating intelligent systems. But it seems to me that over the last five to 10 years, there are 
a range of technologies which are really very, very promising. And it's going to be an empirical issue as to how successful they turn out to be in practice. So deep learning systems are one mm-hmm. well-known example, which build on earlier developments in connectionist research. But also, again, building on earlier developments, there are some really very successful kinds of computing systems, which are often called Bayesian computing systems that rely on a range of algorithms, some of which were around in the early 70s and others that were developed in the 80s and 90s. So it seems to me it's largely an empirical question. It depends on how effective the research gets done. But certainly, I think it's about as promising as it ever has been. Did you know that 23 programs in The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences are nationally ranked as top 25 programs, with more than 10 of them in the top 10? That's why we say the College of Arts and Sciences is the intellectual and academic core of The Ohio State University. Learn more about the college at artsandsciences.osu.edu. I know you're current research project is a monograph titled Number Concepts, The Nature and Content of Numerical Thought. First of all, tell us, what do you mean by numerical thought? Is that the same as mathematics? It's not quite the same. So there are large parts of mathematics which are not interested in number. In fact, the title is a little bit too expansive because The book, which is co-authored with my colleague Stuart Shapiro in philosophy at OSU, and a former postdoc and graduate student in my department, Eric Snyder, who's now at Ashoka University in India, the focus is actually on the use of natural numbers, number terms. So think of very simple kinds of arithmetic reasoning, adding two and two, for example, and counting a collection of objects. That's the principal focus. So although these issues do come up, the principal focus is not, for example, on the sorts of things that you can do with real numbers. And the focus certainly isn't on sort of many areas of mathematics which are not directly concerned with number, for example, topology or geometry, analytic geometry, and so on. So what is the thesis of the book or the argument of the book? Well, it's probably a good idea to set some of the background. So our feeling is something like this. For an extremely long period of time, philosophers have been interested in mathematics broadly and number in particular, the nature of numerical thought. But in the last 40 to 50 years, there has been an explosion of research in certain empirical disciplines. The most striking ones are developmental psychology, where psychologists have been concerned to understand how children acquire a facility to count and to do basic arithmetic. And in neuroscience, particularly an area of neuroscience known as cognitive neuroscience, where the interest has been on how adults and humans and non-human organisms are able to perform what, at least on the face of it, looked like simple numerical tasks, for example, determining which of two collections is larger. And the third area, which there's been a lot of research on, and this is something which I think is quite novel about our project, is linguistic semantics, where semanticists, people who studied language, the semantics of language. Semantics meaning like meaning. Yes, exactly. So semantics, the word semantics means pertaining to meaning. And the area of linguistics known as semantics is an area which tries to provide 
systematic accounts of what various expressions, complex expressions typically in our languages mean. So how sentences get to have the meanings that they have, to put it very crudely. And what our project does is seek to bring together these different areas in order to shed light on a question of mutual concern to these various areas. And the central question is this, what number concepts do we have? How are we able to express them in language? And how are they acquired? So those are really the three central questions. I should probably pause for a minute before I go on. The major theses are quite complicated, so I won't go into too much detail here. But the rough idea is we think that the ability to acquire basic number concepts is centrally dependent upon our linguistic capacities, in particular, certain kinds of semantic principles that human beings appear to possess, and that it develops out of an early practice of counting. So where you count small collections of objects, and we have a theory and account of how you get from this simple kind of counting to possessing the sorts of concepts that are relevant to doing simple arithmetic. So think about the kinds of adding and subtracting and multiplying that goes on in the first two years of grade school. So there we stop, because at that point, the empirical research sort of depixelates. There isn't sufficient empirical research to act as guardrails on our speculations and theories. Is the number sense innate or is our sense of number learned? The question is equivocal. So there's something which often in the neuroscience in particular gets called the number sense. So a really good cognitive neuroscientist, a guy called Stan DeHen, is famous for writing a book that was called The Number Sense. And The Number Sense focuses on a kind of neural system which seems to be highly conserved across different species. So for example, you find it in lots of non-human animals and you find it in birds as well. And in effect, what it's able to do is, amongst other things, are certain kinds of approximate numerical comparisons. So it can do to a certain resolution, which I won't go to the details here, it can tell which of two collections are larger so long as that there's a suitably large ratio between the two collections. So it can discriminate between five and 10 objects. It can't actually discriminate between 10 and 11 objects, for example. It can't tell the difference. It sort of gives you approximate indications of the number of objects in collections, but it can do so approximately. So Dehen called that the number sense, or at any rate, that was the principal system that comprises what he called the number sense. Psychologists and neuroscientists often refer to this system as the approximate number system or the analog magnitude system. And I think if we focus on this system, there's a lot of reasons to suppose that it's innate in some sense of that term. It's not learnt. It's a product of evolutionary processes. It seems to emerge extremely early in development. You find it in non-human organisms, and it seems also to operate throughout the life of a human being. So you and I both do the sorts of discriminations using this kind of neural system that one finds in, let's say, rodents or monkeys. So that thing is plausibly innate. I think our ability to do precise arithmetic using symbols and number words I don't think for a moment that that's innate. I think that's a long 
arduous process. So just to give you a sense of how hard fought that ability is, kids around about the age of two and a half start being able to number collections containing exactly one object. So if you say, you know, give me one cup, the kid will give you exactly one cup around this time. But if you ask the kid at this age, they're sometimes called one knowers to give you, let's say, two cups or three cups, it's going to basically respond at random, just give you some number of cups greater than one. And it's another somewhere between one and a half to two years before the child is able to do that, let's say, up to 10 objects. That's a very, very slow process. And it's not the kind of arduous, belabored development that you would predict if the capacity to count, for example, in this sort of way were innate. It's not what you'd expect because, just to give you one illustration, during the same period of time, the kid is acquiring facility with tens of words every single day of its life. So why learning to use the word seven or eight should take another year and a half would be a little bit puzzling if the process were, as it were, innately specified or innately determined. Are there implications for your research on teaching and education, how we teach children arithmetic? I think potentially there are. In fact, there's a colleague and a collaborator at OSU in psychology, John Opfer, who's been working on these sorts of issues over the last few years. So precisely what the implications are, I think, is something that I'm not clear on at the moment. The obvious role it would play is if you had reason to suppose the sequencing of had to be a certain way in order to acquire, for example, the ability to do symbolic addition where you use, for example, Arabic numerals, there would be no point trying to teach children to do that until you have the other components of the process in place already. So I believe that there are at least potentially implications precisely what those are. Frankly, I'm not sure of at this point. You had said, or I understood you to say, that number concepts are tied to our ability to use language. What is the relationship? Well, I think that the first part of this, and by the way, this is by no means my view. This is quite a sort of like a widespread view. For many cultures, some sign system is involved in all of them once you get above about three in number. But for many cultures that have been most intensively studied, there's some sort of counting procedures involved. And the most typical kinds of counting procedures involve linguistic symbols, if you like, count words in the case of English, for example, that are involved in counting. So the facility with counting, first just being able to recite the numerals in stable order, and then being able to accurately number particular collections of objects seems to be centrally involved in the early Hmm. mastery of an ability to sort of think in a broadly numerical way about the world we inhabit. I should stress that this is to do with mental states that precisely represent the number of objects rather than approximately represent them in the way that If you remember our discussion of the number sense earlier on, would suggest we were able to do so. So there's another edited book project that you've been involved in, Advances in Experimental Philosophy of Science. Yeah. And you have to define for us what is meant by experimental philosophy of science. Okay. So philosophy of science has explicitly been an area of philosophy for well over a century, but philosophers have long been concerned about issues regarding the nature of science. So Philosophy of science has historically been interested in just to give you some illustrations of sorts of questions. 
what scientific theories are. What is it for something to be an explanation or a good explanation? What laws of nature are? How does conceptual change happen during the course of science? And what are the implications of the sort of conceptual change that occur for other issues? For example, whether or not the things our theories talk about exist, so quarks or atoms or molecules, whether or not talk of quarks and molecules is just a useful way of, as it were, codifying our world or whether or not we're actually picking out sort of really existing entities. So those are the sorts of questions that philosophy of science has traditionally been interested in. So I should probably say something about the experimental part. First of all, I don't think experiment is a way of resolving many of these questions. But historically, the philosophy of science has had this kind of dual character where some of the issues that's interested in really do seem to be claims about either factual claims about scientific communities and scientific institutions, or and in some cases, and these are the cases I'm most interested in, cases about claims about what as a matter of fact is going on in particular scientists when they, for example, accept a theory. And claims like what's going on when someone accepts a theory could be viewed as a broadly normative question, what ought to happen when somebody accepts a theory? Or it might be a claim about, as it were, the empirical nuts and bolts of what happens when someone accepts a theory. So for example, do they believe the theory? Do they believe when they accept, I don't know, quantum mechanics? Do they also come to believe that there are quantum particles When they accept general relativity, do they come to believe that space is curved? Or is it rather that they adopt some other kind of attitude, let's say acceptance without believing? So in that register, these are empirical questions. And if you've spent any time around psychologists and behavioral scientists, if someone gives you what looks like an empirical question about what scientists do, then the obvious thing to do is to test it. So that's the experimental part of it. And so the edited volume was basically bringing people together to address various questions of this broadly empirical kind regarding science and scientific theories. I'm curious to know why you decided to become a philosopher. That's a good question. So biographically, I became interested in philosophy up until about the age of 18, my great passion was actually English literature, and I was fascinated by poetry and theatre in particular. Around the age of 17, my mother, who passed away recently, she left school very early, but she was doing a degree later in life, and she had a copy of David Hume's Inquiries. And I, for good or ill, I read parts of it and became fascinated with the sorts of questions that Hume was raising. And there's something... I think for many philosophers, this is a kind of compulsion. It it doesn't have the feeling of something you sort of do because there are other things that you could do, but you just kind of decide for strategic reasons you're going to do it. It's rather something you feel compelled to do. So I actually, having done an undergraduate degree in philosophy, I, I actually moved into artificial intelligence and computer science and was fully intending for that to become my future. But the philosophy kind of drags you back and these great big questions about minds and how minds relate to the world around us, the ones which I find very hard to drop and leave alone. So I'm lucky enough to be paid for thinking about them and teaching about them. Richard Samuels, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to talk. Voices from the Arts and Sciences is produced and recorded at The Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio. 
Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer. Produced by Doug Dangler. I'm Ava Dale. <laughs>